We have a beauty problem, and it's time to talk about it. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about peacocks and accountants. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. My name is Grant Brown, and I'm the founder of Happy Eco News. We provide positive news about the environment five times a day and a top five newsletter for your inbox every Monday morning. We only have two goals. One is to help people find hope for the future, and two is to help promote the good people that are doing the good work. I hope your audience will check us out at happyeconews.com and learn how people of all types are making a difference and ultimately that there is still reason for hope. Thank you. Charles Darwin had a big problem with peacocks, and it shows just how insightful he was in understanding, even without knowing that genetics existed, even without understanding that DNA could be a thing, how insightful he was about his principles of evolution. Because after figuring out the obvious but previously unstated fact that creatures are more likely to reproduce if they fit into the environment, he had a real problem with peacocks. And the problem is this. Being a peacock is sort of stupid because you're attracting predators, because you're wasting an enormous amount of energy growing your plumage, because it's hard to walk around with all of those feathers. And so the question is, why do peacocks have big feathers? Well, the answer, which seems sort of reductive, is because peahens like peacocks with big feathers. If you're a peacock and you don't have big feathers, you're not going to have kids because peahens aren't going to choose you as mate. This idea of sexual selection has been expanded upon over the last hundred years, but it's still not really understood. If you look at the extraordinary video of how birds of paradise mate, it's really astonishing to see that the male bird will spend hours cleaning up a tiny portion of the jungle, picking up every single stray feather until it's neat as a pin. And then the female bird of paradise will fly over and the male will strut and preen and do all sorts of bizarre things with its head. And then if it's very lucky, it will be able to reproduce. The thing is, none of those things help it get fed. None of those things help it avoid predators. Sexual selection happens in lots and lots of parts of the animal kingdom. Now, there's one part of it that beauty actually has a useful signaling in it that makes sense to me, which is that for creatures, including humans, who don't understand how to predict the future health of someone because they can't do genetic testing, if someone has a supple coat or clear skin or lots of muscles, one could make the assumption, if you're a creature, that that person, that creature, might end up giving you healthy offspring. And so we could assert from the beginning that where beauty comes from is a signal from a healthy individual to others that it can afford to put resources into looking good 
because it's healthy. But clearly, that's not the case with peacocks and definitely not with humans. And the way we can prove this with humans is we keep changing the definition of beauty, not just physical beauty, but all the beauty cues that we see in our culture. That it turns out that if you looked a certain way in the 1800s, if you didn't have a tan, if you were suitably plump, it was a signal that you were wealthy and that made you more attractive to some people. But I'm not just talking about the surface stuff that we could see in a magazine. That when we think about what does it mean to be beautiful, whether we're talking about a poem, a song, or a person, there are lots and lots of elements involved. And we use those signals to make ridiculous choices, choices about who to vote for, choices about who to hire. And the key word that we often don't use is conventional. This person is conventionally attractive because it keeps changing. So a couple rhetorical questions for you. If you were hiring and there were two candidates left to choose from and one of them was a super competent, hardworking, honest, loyal accountant who wasn't going to make any mistakes and get your books done well, and the other one wasn't as good at any of those measures at being an accountant, but the first one was a close talker who didn't dress well and sort of had hygiene issues. And the second one was somebody who had done really, really well in the high school attractiveness sweepstakes and was charismatic and fun to be around. Which one might you hire? Or if you're dating someone and they have all the attributes that you're looking for in a partner, but they have an unconventionally large or small nose, one that attracts attention from across the room, does that get in the way? What if their skin color or their disability status is different than yours or the way you expected to be in the world? We are making all of these surface decisions and we don't usually use words to describe them. That's just the way I feel. That's just the way I am. That's just what I'm attracted to. But why are we attracted? Why are we attracted to these things that feel beautiful to us? Because we're not peacocks and we're not peahens. Roger Fisher did some of the most important work on sexual selection. And one of the things he talked about was the fact that it can go to a runaway state. And by that, what he's describing is this. The one who is doing the picking, often the female, just has an instinct. It likes big feathers. It likes certain mating rituals. And so it picks among all the other choices, the mate that meets those things. But then that couple, that couple has offspring, has kids. The male has bigger feathers. The male is reinforced. The female has more of a proclivity, more of a desire to see that thing that attracted its mom. And so it goes in one direction. It gets more and more pronounced, so pronounced that it ends up actually leading to the species falling out of favor in the evolutionary sweepstakes, that the species is no longer fit for the environment because runaway sexual selection 
got out of hand. And the same thing is happening in our culture. And here's another version of Runaway. Think about what's happening, at least in my country, with politicians and primaries. If some voters decide that a candidate is, quote, more beautiful, not just because they're taller, we have a long history in the United States of electing the tallest candidate, but because they are leaning toward an extreme on one topic or another, while in the primary, the candidates who go further to that extreme are more likely to attract the voters who care about that signal of political beauty and they end up winning. That then attracts more voters who like that feeling, which then drives politicians to go even further to the edges. Democracy was architected to help move toward the center, to help create community. But the primary system plus gerrymandering plus social media plus the political money machine is driving it to the other edges because runaway is happening, because the dance between the peacock of the politician and the peahen of the voter keeps going in only one direction. If it turns out that being a billionaire on the Forbes 400 list makes you more attractive and able to have more kids with more people, well, then some people will make choices to be on that list to move up even though they have enough, more than enough, to get through life. If it turns out that being attracted to somebody who ends up going through that cycle makes it more likely that you will have kids that are attracted, then yes, you've got it. The culture changes. And it's easy to look at this and say, well, not me. So I will ask, do you have a pair of high-heeled shoes? Are you attracted to people who are wearing high-heeled shoes? What are high-heeled shoes for exactly? Well, they're things that some cultures use to send or receive signals. Signals about affiliation and status. What does it mean to fit in? You don't wear sneakers to the senior prom, except now I think you do, which is probably a good thing. Because three-inch heels, three-inch heels are not effective. Three-inch heels are not healthy. Three-inch heels do not help us thrive in most ordinary environments. They're simply a signal, a signal around beauty and fitness, about understanding the cues of culture because you want to be seen as more attractive. Or if you are attracted to them, you want to be seen as somebody who is achieving a certain level of status or affiliation. And so marketers use all of this against us. It was only a few decades ago that they invented the ridiculous canard that you should spend three months salary on an engagement ring, that you should buy a worthless piece of carbon, one that you can hardly resell and put this ring on your spouse's finger as a signal, as a symbol of beauty, as some sort of sexual selection signifier that shows the world that you understand what conventional beauty is. And as a result, we are overlooking value all over the place. Value and dignity and justice and fairness and equity. But yes, value, because the undervalued people, the ones who aren't conventionally attractive in whatever way we want to define that, their resources are underused. They are unable to contribute at the level that they could. And so when we think about where we started this rant, that the utility of fur that is shiny and supple 
or skin that is clear as a signal that somebody is fit for their environment and more likely as they are healthy to have successful offspring has been morphed into high-heeled shoes. And the alternative instead is to be really clear about why something is important to us, to seek out actual, useful, honest signals that tell us about whether somebody has the ability, the desire, the skill to bring emotional labor to the table, to contribute in a way that we need them to contribute. Because conventional standards of beauty are just an inch away from judging people, from being racist or ableist, or just reinforcing what came before. Affiliation and status roles run deep in our culture. We're probably hardwired for them the way the peahen is for the peacock. But now that we see it, now that we understand that affiliation and status and conventional ideas of beauty are all intertwined in our culture, we come back to the key questions. Who's it for and what's it for? These actions that we are taking, these people that we are connecting with, these projects we are working on, who are they for and what are they for? Because we have a chance to make things better, but we can make things better first by realizing what we're not even examining. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. It can be about past episodes or whatever you think overlaps with the work. Here we go. Hi, Seth. Um, This is Hannah from England. And I have a question about your work, um, kind of in general. um, And it's about this idea of hacks. I've heard you talk about it a lot before. But my question is, Um, how do you differentiate between doing work that people truly want and just making a hack? 
um, I feel sometimes it's hard to separate um, the two and figure out what isn't just tacky and hacky and to make work that truly matters. Um, I definitely don't want to fall into the hack category. And how do we do that? Thank you very much for everything that you do. Thank you for this, Hannah. It's a great question. I talk about it in my book, The Practice, and I think it causes a little bit of confusion. So I'd be happy to lean into it. There's nothing wrong with being a hack if you're being a hack on purpose. The idea of a hack is somebody who says, if you want X, I've got X. If you're used to spending Y, I can sell it to you a little bit cheaper. Giving people what they want and selling it to them a little bit cheaper, there's nothing wrong with that. We need that. It is one of the bases for our culture, but it's not art. And that is the gap that I'm trying to highlight. Now, if you go to see a Fleetwood Mac cover band, well, most of the time that a Fleetwood Mac cover band is playing Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits, they're being hacks. And then every once in a while, they do something that people don't expect. They actually inhabit the personalities of the people who they are emulating. They actually go beyond what a cover band would do. They take it to the next level. In that moment, they're doing something that might not work. They're taking people somewhere that they didn't know they wanted to go. If you go to see a cover band, the thing you came for was a jukebox, was the greatest hits. But if they take you further than that, if they surprise you, if they delight you, well, now they're leaning away from a strict adherence to the genre and going someplace new, something that might not work. And if that's what you want, if that's thrilling, if that fuels your work, that is what you have to seek out. And you don't get there by simply doing a focus group and asking people what they want. You get there by making assertions about what is possible and where people might want to go. Which leads us to our next question. Hi, Seth. This is Abril Hernandez from Guadalajara, Mexico. I am a designer, and I am currently working on a project around death. And how can we better design spaces and services um, around this topic? I am currently in a stage in my project where I feel stuck and I need help uh, from future users and know their feedback on, and thoughts on this topic. But I find it difficult to approach uh, people and ask them about this very sensitive and very difficult subject. So I wanted to know if you have any thoughts or suggestions on what should I keep in mind when talking or asking other people about this. I would like to thank you very much for all the work that you do. It is very inspiring. Um, muchas gracias and saludos. Thank you for this and thank you for doing this work. I think it's fair to say that in a 100 years of industrialization, we've done a terrible, terrible job of making the process, the transition to death, of dancing with death, of dealing with death, We've done a terrible job of making that any better. In fact, in many ways, we've made it worse. We spend a huge portion of our healthcare budget prolonging the lives of people who are about to die. And we don't do it in a way that gives them comfort or that helps them get to where they are going. And then 
to the survivors. Well, we take a lot of their money, but we haven't really reflected anything we've learned about grief. And your point, which is when I try to talk about this, people don't really respond well, is part of the problem because we've made it very hard to talk about. It's a little bit like the way sex was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, that a whole group of the population, half, weren't even supposed to speak up at all. So now what you are doing, what you are trying to do, is talk to people, not about their experience with death, because everyone you're talking to hasn't died, maybe about their experience with grief, but mostly, I think, you need to talk to and develop empathy for people who aren't exactly sure what project you're working on. We need to get a better feel for people's hopes and dreams, for understanding where their fears lie. We need to become intimate with the things that they're going to be dealing with that they're not even aware that they're dealing with or going to be dealing with. And this is where the art of design comes in, that we can't prove we have the right answer. So yes, design thinking begins with who's it for and what's it for, but where it extends to, where it gets difficult, is when we have to say, you might not know that this is what you needed. You might not know that this is what you were dreaming of, but here, here, I made this. And that makes it easy to get stuck, because if you're coming at this needing to be approved and applauded by everyone who interacts with your work, it's not going to happen. Instead, if you approach it with generosity and say, maybe this will help one person. Maybe this will help 10 people. Maybe this is something my grandparents wish they could have had. If you can approach it that way as a gift, it makes it easier for you to push your way forward. Thanks again for doing this work. Hi, Seth. This is Kevin from San Francisco and a proud Alt-MBA alum. My question for you this week is, um, I've heard you talk a lot about, as a freelancer, getting better clients. Um, but as the reverse of that is, um, as a client, how do I make sure that I'm getting the most out of the people that I'm paying? Um, what kinds of communication can I use to ensure that Thanks for this question. The end got cut off, but I will do my best to answer it because you're bringing up something really important, which is, yes, freelancers need better clients, but how do good clients get better freelancers? Well, in my experience, there are two big problems and a small one. The small one, easiest to fix, is the disrespect of not paying people fairly and on time. You should pay people fairly and on time maybe even a little bit early, because you can afford it and because this sign of respect transforms the relationship. But beyond that, the two traps that I see organizations and individuals falling into are A, making the project way too small, making the project so precise that you give the freelancer no room to do great work. And the second one, which often afflicts people who try to hire great freelancers, is you make the project too big. You say, I'll know it when I see it. You ask them to read your mind. You ask them to come up with something with insufficient budget, time, or information. And as a result, what you're doing is passing off to them the responsibility for the project not working. That makes it really hard to get great freelancers. The alternative is for you 
to take responsibility for the project working and to give them the right degrees of freedom to spend twice as much time as you're spending now specking the project with the freelancer, asking them hard questions about where the boundaries should be, being really clear with each other about the resources and what great work looks like. Because if those early conversations go well, then a great freelancer is going to give you even better than great work. We have to put ourselves on the hook, not simply find somebody and hand to them not just a project, but all of the responsibility. Because they're freelancers. They're not miracle workers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.